My whole purpose was to try to demystify the rose by having the educational tours and then we serve them a little lunch or some tea in the garden and they were able to ask questions. And I think slowly but surely, that's what's happened. The rose has become a little bit less complicated. I think mm-hmm. now just about anybody can grow some roses in their garden and pick them for their dinner table. Some of our best information comes from other gardeners, you know, other experiences. And so the idea of sharing stories is just a wonderful way to garner knowledge. And that's going to be my next book, I'm telling you. It's going to be about Rose stories. Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing. This is episode 605. This is the weekly podcast about slow flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This show is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free online directory to more than 850 florists, shops, and studios who design with local, seasonal, and sustainable flowers, and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor, Farm Grow Flowers. Farm Grow Flowers delivers iconic burlap wrap bouquets and lush, abundant arrangements to customers across the U.S., supporting U.S. flower farms by purchasing more than $10 million of U.S.-grown, fresh and seasonal flowers and foliage annually. Discover more at farmgrowflowers.com. And thank you to Longfield Gardens, which provides home gardeners with high-quality flower bulbs and perennials. Their online store offers plants for every region and every season, from tulips and daffodils to dahlias, caladiums, and amaryllis. Check out the full catalog at longfield-gardens.com. Well, if you're like me and you're a rose lover, you already know about Rose Story Farm in Carpinteria, California, a mecca for garden roses. All 40,000 plants that produce cut flowers to supply the national floral trade and event design world. Rose Story Farm thrives under the care of Danny Hahn, her husband Bill Hahn, her mother Patricia Dalarmi, her sister Nina Dalarmi, and her business manager Patty Keck and so many other longtime farm staff members. She may not remember this, but I first met Danny in October of 2007 when I had recently relocated from Seattle to Ventura County. And my Seattle friends, Marianne and Charles Pember, who were vacationing in Santa Barbara, invited me to meet them at Rose Story Farm for one of its famous tours and luncheons in the display gardens. Writing about that visit was actually one of my very first blog posts. Later, we corresponded when Danny joined Slow Flower Society during the very first year of our existence as an organization. And then I visited during an industry dinner where we finally met in person. Soon thereafter, Danny appeared as a guest, my 26th guest of the new Slow Flowers podcast, and that was in February of 2014. So much has happened in the ensuing years, which she and I discuss in today's episode, while I also turn the pages of The Color of Roses, her new book, and we admire the lush and dreamy rose photography of her collaborator, Victoria Pearson. It's a 330-page book, an amazing volume. Let's jump right in and meet Danny Hahn, catch up on all that she's been doing, 
and learn why she wants to reclassify the term garden rose. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Slow Flower Show. And today I'm so thrilled to welcome my dear friend, Danny Hahn of Rose Story Farm. Hi, Danny. How are you, Deborah? I'm great. It's so great to see you in your beautiful space. You know, your your roses are almost as beautiful as you are. And oh, I just, Deborah, thank you. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I just am so happy we're doing this. Just to, by way of background to folks, I say that I'm welcoming Danny back. She's never been on our video show. We only have done this for two years, but we just looked it up. Danny was my 28th ever guest of the Slow Flowers podcast back in 2014. So it's a high time that we do this again. <laughs> well, it's, it's great. really delightful to be here. So Wow. So you're coming to us from your um, writing studio in uh, at Rose Story Farm in Carpinteria, Um and I visited your farm before. You did show a little peek out the door of the rose fields. So I think we should just have you rotate so people that. can see where yeah. you are. Yeah. Okay. So let's see here. See if you can, um, Deborah. Oh, yeah. you're going to have to. Yeah, that's perfect. Can everybody see? Yeah, rows and rows. But we are about a month and a half behind any year we've ever experienced. We should have, it, this field should be completely full of roses right now. Oh, my gosh. I mean. That's. The weather has been yeah. insane. Yeah. But it's right. not just this year. You've had crazy oh, weather for many years. It's crazy. Yes, it is. So anyway, I'll go back. Um, and, and if we want to be in that direction, we can do that. So. <laughs> no, you're perfect. And I was going to say, and still she persists. <laughs> um, yeah. But we're here to celebrate. Yeah, we're here to celebrate the publication of The Color of Roses, this amazing, beautiful kind of a love letter to roses from you and your collaborator, uh, photographer, um, Victoria Pearson, who I think I met at your yes. farm once. Um, yes, you is, did. Yes, you this did. This is a chunky book. We've been working. I know we've been working together for 25 years. Vicki, um, did our first little piece of press, um, uh, for us. I think we decided it was in 2004, which is crazy. So, wow. um, was that I know a, for a national was, publication? Uh, Santa Barbara Magazine oh, wow. was the very first, and then uh, and then we did Martha Stewart uh, and Oprah, and I mean we've done Better Homes and Gardens, and she's photographed them all, wow. everything, wow. and um, she's just well as you can see by with the book, it's pretty amazing. Her stuff, she is just a complete nitpicker, and everything is absolutely spot on. Perfect. Yeah. So, but you're kind of like that too, in terms of the precision <laughs> of detail that I've learned from you about how to describe roses and what, you know, what the particular characteristics are. It's, it's, you're a walking encyclopedia. Okay. So it's no wonder, Danny, it's no wonder that all this knowledge you have has um, earned you lots of attention and awards. I think the biggest, uh, most prestigious one for you is the great Rosarian of the world being inducted into that, that, small cadre of rosarians right yes yeah that really uh, it was shocking and humbling and a great honor um it was uh yeah pretty awesome yeah i, I read the that. list of people of that had had received it before me and i thought oh, this is wrong i'm a fraud this is not me <laughs> i don't no. belong here no <laughs> honestly no. it's just crazy these people are really they've given their life to roses and this has just been fun for me for 25 years it's just been you know like a party 
So but, in that but sense. Yeah, but you're a practitioner. I mean, you're touching roses every day and you're um, just, you've demonstrated such a vast, um, you know, kind of palette of roses that are, that you can grow and that people want. And you've pop- popularized a lot of the garden roses that were sort of unknown in the floral industry, I would think. Right. Well, I, I hope so. I mean, my whole my whole purpose uh, when we started thinking about how we were going to get our message out into the world is um, to just sort of try to demystify the rose and get more, more people to try it by having the tours, the educational tours, and then we serve them a little lunch or some tea in the garden and they were able to ask questions. And I think slowly but surely um, that's what's happened. The rose has become a little bit less um you know, sort of less complicated as it, as it were. Um, So that's exciting for me. And to have all these people that are so now interested in growing roses is really exciting. It's exciting. Mm -hmm. And it means that there's going to be more roses available for people to buy and more roses to use. And, and just, you know, for, for floor, um, the general population. I think mm-hmm. now um, just about anybody can uh, grow some roses in their garden and and pick them for their dinner table. Wow. That's kind of yeah. fun. Well, I just for the visual uh, joy of it all, I'm going to pop up the um, the spreads, the, the PDF of the book. Your publisher is generous enough to share it with me. Um, the, we're starting with the inside pages. So you'd all, you all saw the cover. And um, I will post uh, the cover and some of these inside pages in our show notes uh, for at slowflowerspodcast.com. But um, Danny, talk a little bit about how, with your collaboration with Victoria for so many years, how did you finally decide um, what you wanted to include in this book with this curated spectrum of 300 blooms? Um, let's talk about that. And I'll just flip through some of the pages while we're talking. Okay, so first of all, I want readily available either to the trade, to the floristry trade, or to home gardeners for their garden. Um, so they had to they had to be roses that were available. Now, some of them are not uh, as easily accessible for gardens as they might be for cut flowers and vice versa. But that was the main thing, was to make sure that the roses were um, accessible. And then secondly, we wanted to make sure that they were all pretty easy to grow. Um, And I focused on modern roses. There are only a few roses in the book that are prior to 1867, which is the sort of the beginning of the modern rose. Okay. And wow. those, I, I selected those because they are absolutely bulletproof and they're just gorgeous. Um, wow. I, I think lots of, I mean, you know, like Sombrier, I just love that rose. It's just absolutely perfect for certain conditions in your garden, um, an mm-hmm. arbor or, um, you know, mostly I like them on arches and arbors. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then I also included Cecile Bruner, which you know, will take over a building if you let her. Um, I have so, I have had that rose in my past. <laughs> so, um, cool. so, the, so the, the older ones were selected because I felt like they deserved a, a home in everybody's garden. Hmm. Um, but mostly, and so I did. I tried to photograph everything that was in our garden. So, the, about 160 to 80 of the roses are roses that we grow here on the farm, and. The others, I 
was able to work with Otto and Sons Nursery, who are my great pals down in uh, Fillmore. Yeah, and we, that's a great um, nursery we in there. Yes, we selected the last 120 there. Um, we started the book a little late in the season, uh, which meant that it was a bit more challenging. I think if we'd started the photography, say, in April or early May, we would have had um, – it would have been an easier chore, but because we didn't start it till I think the end of June, early July, a lot of the roses were sort of off peak and it was challenging to find uh, the flower that I wanted to have photographed. So at, at the end, you know, at the beginning, we would photograph 30 or 40 in a day and I just Gosh. go out and pick um, the most perfect examples of the flowers. But at the end of the whole process, I would be driving down to Auto at 4.30 in the morning, going out there at the absolute crack of day um, with Timmy, and we'd ride around in the golf cart and try to find a perfect bloom. And sometimes it was just one bloom. And then I'd pick that bloom and drive it over to Ojai <laughs> and give it to Vicky. And sometimes, you know, the, the bloom was just not quite what she wanted. So we'd have to start over the next day. So it was really a labor of oh love. My gosh. And certainly the last 30 that we photographed were, it was, it was a challenge. So I, I'm really impressed, Danny, because like, I'm looking at this, this is the very first, uh, I guess, Rose profile in the book. So you kind of organize it. So you're seeing a detail of the, of the bloom with its beautiful petals and then a of portrait of the rose on its stem so you can see the foliage and the habit is that sort of how you uh, wanted to portray all no. of these oh <laughs> sorry <laughs> no e each rose no each if you go back to that other picture okay okay yeah talk about that one so uh, each page is a separate rose and what we wanted okay. to do was we wanted to show the rose in what we felt was the perfect way to show that particular bloom so the one on the left that i i can't read that i think it's it the bagatelle yes the bagatelle mm -hmm. um i mm -hmm. that's what i was going to guess so that rose the center of that rose is so spectacular that we wanted to focus on that for this particular bloom so that's what we showed and then opposite that on bolero that's kind of more fun to see the whole stem so each rose we decided what you know what view of the actual stem we wanted to uh, you know Got feature sure. and then we wanted to put them we arranged them in kind of a rainbow of so as you flipped through and that was a huge job to try to arrange all the pictures and then make sure they were color corrected to match the actual bloom Wow. Huge job. Huge, huge wow. job. But wow. but see how the, on the right, we just love that Lorabunda kind of look. Right. And then the one yeah. on the left, that was just, I mean, that rose is just spectacular. Mm. So anyway, and then we also did not retouch the photographs. I wanted people to understand that a rose could be absolutely gorgeous without being perfect. I mean, it could have an insect bite on the leaf or a little bit of... of of browning around the edge of the petal, um, thrip damage. So. I love that. Yeah. And it, it's really, um, it, it's, it's your, your eye and Victoria's eye that found the best light, the best, you found the best bloom. She found the best light. The photo is just, right. these photos are so evocative, Danny. Um, I'm picturing you at yeah, 4.30 in the morning I though mean, with like a 
with like a cooler in your car so that because these days get really hot where you live. Danny, I wanted to stop at this spread because um, Julia Child is on the right and Charles Darwin is on the left. What an interesting pairing you've. I know. <laughs> they need to have a dinner party together, you know, right? <laughs> Don't they? Up, yeah. up there watching us? Yes. Yeah. But yeah. you have a special relationship with this Julia Child Rose. And uh, can you share a little bit about that? Well, okay. So, so basically my father and mother and Julia and her husband, Paul were very good friends. And, um, they, they, when they moved, they used to spend sort of winters in Santa Barbara and then their summers were in Massachusetts and Boston, Cambridge. Um, but anyway, as, as, um, Paul did, uh, passed on and, um, Julia then moved out to Santa Barbara full time and, and anyway, they they became really close friends. I think my father, she she somebody brought her to dinner at my dad's house, um, and um, they just became fast friends. They were aligned in so many different areas. They just just hit it off, and so they started going to the farmers markets together. And then she started coming over to more often to dinner, and pretty soon she was sort of a fixture. Um, you know, during the holidays at our home and um, Sunday night dinners and that sort of thing. And so dad had been working on her to, he just said, you know, you need to have a rose. Um, you need to have a rose named after you. Um, and she was very resistant at first. She didn't, you know, she didn't subscribe to any type of commercial um, um Endeavor. Like endorsements or whatever. No, yeah. no, no. It was PBS all the way. She never loaned her name to a, you know, a pot and pan line or a knife line, or she didn't even want to do a scholarship uh, in her name because it would only benefit one person. And so mm. she's very picky. And he kept saying, well, you know, um, the rose, is, it, if you had a rose, it could it could really be uh, universal and it could be in everyone's garden and it's not, they're not terribly expensive and it would be a wonderful way to remember you. And, you know, he just kept it up and kept it up. And one day <laughs> <laughs> she arrived at the farm um, with her uh, lawyer and her niece um, and she said, I'm ready to pick my rose. And um, so... <laughs> she, I know, I was like, well, okay. And we had a little test garden. And um, so I went to the test garden. I knew she would pick the yellow rose, but I thought, well, she better have a backup because in the rose world, um, you never know what's already been spoken for or if it's going to even make it into commerce. Um, that's a whole different conversation. But um, she didn't want any other rose. She only wanted the yellow one. So I called Tom Carruth and I said, Tom, Julia wants the yellow rose. And he said, well, it, it's already named and we can't do that. And I said, well, then that's too bad. She's not going to have a rose. And <laughs> so as I was hanging up the phone, the second line rang in my office and Tom said, I'll make it work. Mm. And he gave her the rose. And mm. the reason um, it, it had already won the ARS award for the best rose um, of the year and then go on to, you know, get more awards over, over the years. But um, and they've only given that rose to two other people, um, Queen Elizabeth and Mr. Lincoln. So most of the time they want these winners to go to be generically named so that they're um, less relatable to 
a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they felt like she was well liked enough and you know such a universal name that she could um, that they could have the they could do this and and so they did. So anyway, and um, she sadly did not see the rose in production ever. It was um, she passed away before they were in commerce, but mm. um, we have the rose now to remember her. We do. I have one in my garden and I know you have probably hundreds or thousands because it's in your product line for Rose Story Farm, right? Yes, it is. And it's a wonderful rose. I I always say, you know, tell people, my clients, my garden clients, that if they want to start with one rose, that's the rose to start with Mm. because it literally does grow anywhere and it's bulletproof. It is truly Mm. bulletproof. Um, Well, well, I, I know that I see on here you've listed um, the breeder and the year and then what form it is, like a floribunda or a shrub, and then what it's known for fragrance-wise, size, and the bloom. So that's the, those are sort of the features that you really wanted to highlight as you uh, showcased these 300 roses, right? Yes, yes. Um, and there was a lot of, you know, we there was a lot of discussion about what we should include. Um I felt very strongly that the fragrance should be noted. Um, But in a book, you know, maybe fragrance is not quite as important um, in a book, but I felt like people really need to know if a rose is fragrant or not. And as you know, in our garden, all the roses are fragrant. So that was a, that's a prerequisite for making it into Rose Story Farm production. That is fragrant. Yeah. So, so that was important to me. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is that you're also helping people think about choosing roses for floral design, but also for planting because you, yes. are, you are a nursery as well, right? Yes. One of the things that we debated about was whether we should have um, the zone listed on this page. But my feeling is that almost every rose can be grown in places where roses grow, um, depending on the rootstock. So you might get a Julia Child on a different rootstock for the East Coast, and that would be just fine. So I didn't really think including the zone was that um, critical. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, that may come back to bite me, but um, I'm not sure. I was curious what you think about that. Well, it's it's sort of back to the thing we were chatting about before we started recording, and that is your belief that there's so much opportunity for local growers more than ever because, well, first of all, you've educated a whole population of would-be flower farmers who want to add roses to their, you know, whatever their repertoire is. But um, the in the sustainability issue of buying your roses close to where you're going to use them, either in the landscape or in floral design, it seems like there would already be that inherent uh, reflection of zone or, you know, wherever it was bred or, or grown by a commercial or wholesale nursery. That's kind, that's kind of what my thought was. And, and, you know, almost all the rose catalogs have a zone listed, but I think it's a little bit um, uh, disconcerting to sort of look at a rose and say, okay, well, it can grow from four, zone four to zone 10 when, I mean, most roses can grow from rose, you know, zone four to zone 10. You just have to take care to winterize them in the, winter and and um you know some of them um don't do quite as well in warmer climates and some of them don't do as well in cooler climates but the idea was that people would look at this book and pick a color that they like Mm. and then be able to pick a rose within that color that 
you know, they find at their local nursery. So they could maybe carry the book along with them and say, I really like this color. What would you recommend that I start with um, their local nursery? What would right. what would you recommend? And if they don't, you know, not to get your heart set on one particular rose that might not be available that year or yeah. in your particular area. So that was my idea with the guard for, you know, was for the garden. And then for cut flowers, sort of the same thing. I mean, you could take the book, uh, match what you wanted to do on your dinner table or in a, you know, for a wedding bouquet or whatever. You could take it to your local flower market or even the grocery store and sort of say, what mm. do you have in this color? Um, mm-hmm. And instead of uh, asking, going in and saying, I have to have uh you know, Coco Loco. Right. Maybe there's something else. Uh, maybe there's another rose that's the same color. Well, let's go back to that. We have to, I just have to chuckle, Danny, because you have seen every, this is Coco Loco on the right here. Yeah. You've seen every rose fad come and go in the 30 plus years that you've had Rose Story Farm. It, does everything just cycle through eventually? Or uh, like, what, you know, you're no longer just applying white roses for weddings. That's for sure, oh, right? This, this, ro- Coco Loco has had such a long life. I cannot believe it. I mean, I think it's been around almost, I would say eight years now, maybe longer. I keep thinking that the neutrals are going to go away, but they don't. They hmm. don't. I mean, every every year someone says, oh, well, the new Pantone color is X. And so we're not going to see any more neutrals. And that just, I don't know. They just yeah. don't seem, they have a life of their own. They just seem to carry on and carry on. Well, a rose like this, um, does it, it just takes maybe eight years for there to be enough, um, you know, I don't know, rootstock, enough rootstock or enough bare root plants to get out into the, you know, into farms so that there can be enough to meet all this demand. I mean, is that right. part of the yes. issue? Yes, yes, absolutely. Wow. And and now I think it's I think it's oversaturated at this point. I think, you know, I mean, if you want Coco Loco, you can get Coco Loco. You know, five years ago, you couldn't. Um, even during the pandemic, um, there were no no Coco Locos available um, wow. as plants. So, wow. um, but you know, it, it's an interesting rose. It it changes color throughout the season. I mean, that particular Even rose here. on the lower left, that's more traditional. That's the more tra- that's the more typical color of Coco Loco. But in uh, warmer climates, that lavender hue that you see at the top there. Mm-hmm. That's this is actually not one stem of rose. This is three stems of rose because I wanted to show that there are multiple colors at, on this plant. For instance, if Felicia uh, of Menagerie, her cocos are completely different than mine because her temperature up there is completely different. So she might have the more mauvey colored ones where I have the more beigey color covered mm. ones or, or, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. I might have in the fall, ours are very mauve colored and um, you know, hers might be a little bit more beige because mm. she's got cooler weather. So it's just, it's interesting. And I think all roses are, are somewhat like that. They, the color depends on your climate and the soil and um obviously your zone. Well, I mean, that's the delight. That's what gives us that sort of uh, imitation to to enjoy the full life cycle of a rose. And, and um, you know, in this world of Pinterest boards for, you know, and inspo boards that 
wedding couples give to their florists or maybe farmer florists, you want to educate people to not ask for exactly what's on that picture, right? You want to say exactly. there's nuances. Oh, absolutely. It's it's so frustrating when we can't, because, you know, almost all brides want an, uh, what do you call a prototype before their wedding. So let's say their wedding is in August and they want the prototype in early April. There's no way that that particular rose is going to be the same color in August. Mm-hmm. So they if they say, look, I really would like uh, peach colored roses. Well, that's one thing. And we might not use the same rose. Um Particularly for garden roses, this is the case. Now, if you're talking about a greenhouse rose or a greenhouse flower, it's a whole different ballgame. I mean, Mm -hmm. they can, you know, they're more standardized. Oh, yeah. They can control the climate inside, they can control the, you know, the uh, whatever they put on their roses. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything is totally. Yeah, mm-hmm. fine. So, but for garden roses, there's no way. I mean, they'll say, well, this doesn't look like your prototype. And I said, well, yeah, but you want this particular rose. This is your rose. Um, it and Mother, right. Mother Nature has a little hand in this and right. Uh, right. seasonality. Well, right. um, you know, I'm just thinking about, Danny, your, your launch of this boutique rose farm that kind of the little engine that could, that really changed, really changed the luxury wedding business, in my opinion, for florals. And um, I don't, We well, first of all, let me back up and say, I will share the, the link to your past podcast interview so people can hear a little bit of the history of how that all came about. Frankly, I don't remember exactly what we talked about, but... <laughs> I don't um, either. <laughs> but I do, I am so fascinated with how you, you have revolutionized what people want for their wedding roses. It is a, the garden rose is a, is a different animal altogether, a different plant altogether. And why did you go in that route and start selling garden roses to florists? Um, is it just because that's what delighted you and that's what you well, loved? Yes. Yes. The simple answer is yes. That is what it called to me. And that's what I liked. And um, of course I could not have picked a more difficult <laughs> Uh, flower to uh, <laughs> to grow for commercial. <laughs> I mean, it has about a minute base life. And yeah. so it's <laughs> right. ridiculous. We've had to learn how, we've had to basically sort of invent how to ship it. Um, uh, yes, you yeah. have. It, yeah. it's, not, it's not been easy, but but it's so, they're so beautiful. And, and now I think I, I want to get on a tiny uh, uh, bandwagon here. Um, the the term garden rose is used now for anything that looks like that rose on the left, mm-hmm. a full petaled rose, even though they can be grown in greenhouses. But a true garden rose is a garden rose. It's grown in the ground outside. And so I'm a little uh, sort of, it's this is going to be my new bandwagon to sort of explain to people that a real garden rose cannot be grown in a greenhouse because that's not that's not my interpretation of a garden rose that's so no i'm glad you brought that up and then you know you talked about the modern roses are all modern roses garden roses or is that a broader category well all roses can be grown in the ground outdoors and that i think in my opinion is a garden rose got it Uh so but most greenhouse roses, um, there are a few exceptions. So I'm trying to think. Um, 
trying to think of one rose that you could grow indoors and outdoors that's the same rootstock. And I can't think of one right now, but I know there are roses that mm-hmm. um, you can grow indoors or outdoors. But for the most part, these roses that we grow cannot be grown indoors. Yeah. And it's sort of a misnomer to say that a greenhouse rose is a garden rose. So we have to come up with a new name for roses that are grown in the ground outside. That's so interesting. I um, I remember seeing somebody who was a greenhouse grower in the U.S. I won't name names, but had um, had a spray rose that ha- happened to have multi-petals, more than you'd normally see. And the the grower was marketing it as a miniature garden rose. And I was like, that's a category I didn't know existed, but it was more just to describe this gardenish form, like the one right. you see on the left. Right. So but no wonder but people are the confused. One, but a, the, that form, I mean, I, I have to credit David Austin for, for that form, really. Although uh, the European, some of the European, the Mayond and the Guillaume roses had the same form, but he's kind of credited for bringing that to the United States, that fully petaled um, cup shape rose that everybody, you know, kind of gravitates to. Yeah, but yeah. the rose on the right is a garden rose. That's a garden rose as well. And um, because more of by a definition, sing, almost, almost more, a little bit more of a single, not right. completely, but yeah. Right. And Sally mm-hmm. Holmes, which is a five petaled rose, that's a garden rose. But how do we, uh, Deborah, that's, that's going to be up to you and me to um, <laughs> pick a new name for roses that are grown outside in the garden. Yeah, I would love to hear from other people about how they've encountered that because you, I mean, you're just pointing to one thing that you are so good at, which is education and everything. And that's where the word story came from, right? Everything was trying to tell people a story so they would understand the magic of roses. Right. Or Um, exchange stories, mm -hmm. listen to other people's stories. I mean, you know, as well as I do that um, some of our best information comes from other gardeners, um, you know, other experiences. And so the idea of sharing stories is just, um, it's just, I mean, it's a wonderful way to garner knowledge. And uh, that's going to be my next book, I'm telling you. It's going to be about rose stories. So, really? <laughs> so, that's, why you're, that's why you're keeping the rose cottage, because you have more work to yeah. do in there. I do. Wow. I do. Oh, Danny, I that's do. so great. Oh my goodness. It's kind of fun. But um, but anyway, so we have to come up with a different name for a garden rose because now all the greenhouse growers have co-opted that rose, that name. And, um, and yeah. you know, and I don't think it's really uh, accurate. Well, and not to pick on the greenhouse growers, but the wholesalers are in on it too. Like, you know, it's just a marketing term now. Right. Um, yes, it might have a softer, maybe less stiff, you know, rigid, tight, you know, those hybrid teas that never open. It's not that. You're right. They're trying to distinguish that rose shape, which is kind of the high pointed center, which is a hybrid tea most of the time. They're trying to, um, although uh, having said that, there are hybrid teas that are um, shaped like, you know, fully petaled uh, cup shaped roses. So that's wrong as well. But um, mm. but they're trying, that high pointed center, I think that's the description that I would use of the grocery store rose. And yeah. they're trying to distinguish the other form from that high pointed center. And they're doing that by calling the other a garden rose. But wow. the garden, garden roses that are quote unquote, that the roses that they're calling garden roses that are grown in greenhouses typically have no fragrance at all. 
And um, that's a great differentiation. I was going to ask you: Is the American Rose Society, uh, what is it, AARS? Are they getting involved in this classification discussion, or is it is it really just kind of gotten crazy and people can't? Um, you know, you know I'm not in? sure. I would love to talk to the current president and ask. And I think that's on my list, Deborah. I'll, I'll figure <laughs> out what we're doing to kind of. A differentiate uh, our garden roses from other garden roses yeah. that are not garden roses, in my opinion. <laughs> well, so. and I I keep clicking through here, but I look. I'm, this is crazy, but it's a this is a big book. I'm only on spread number eighty six, and there's one hundred and sixty nine. So just for the viewers, we're not going to get through all of these. You have to buy your own copy um, because it is just it just goes on and on, and it's really the kind of book that you would just sit and. I guess daydream and take notes and make yourself yeah. lists and especially the way you have it organized, you know, by color. And, you know, I know you've designed gardens by color. Remember that garden that, that um, I helped you with on the, the story with where it was yes. like, it was like a medallion with sections. Uh, how did you just, how did you design that? It was very color driven. It was, uh, that was done like a rainbow and we did it. Mm -hmm. It was a full circle. The spokes of the circle were, lines of roses in a rainbow fashion and so mm. um yeah that was one of the first gardens i ever designed and it it, it was quite quite beautiful when it was in full bloom so and the client yeah, was fun the client wanted came to you as i recall because she wanted to cut from her garden for her floral yes. arranging yes that yes. was her lifestyle so, yes and so and that was my first um attempt at planting roses really close together in one direction and giving them more room in another direction so that you could have sort of more bang for your buck in a sense, if you wanted a cutting garden um, hmm, interesting. to do it that way, to kind of plant them hedge fashion instead of, you know, separating each plant by, you know, a couple of feet. Oh, wow. So the, the, the spokes or spikes or whatever, they were tight, tightly yes, spaced. very tight. Between, between each them, of those was um, a little bit more room so that they, she could get in there and cut them, get in there and care for them and that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. that was the first time I'd ever done that. And I realized that roses could be grown, planted a lot more closely, you know, planted together mm -hmm. um, than, than the, than typically then, well, well then history told us that we couldn't do that, <laughs> mm. that every rose needed, you know, three or four feet around it to really spread its wings. And um, I, roses will grow in almost any conditions and circumstances. I mean, they may not be prolific. You may only get a few blooms, but they literally will bloom just about anywhere they're planted. They, they just want, want to, bloom. to bloom. Yeah, yeah. they do. Wow. So, that was kind of fun. <laughs> a lot of it is trial and error. And, if, and yes. you know, you're relatively self-taught. I don't know want to characterize that you haven't taken classes and all, but you've but kind you of... you can. You can. <laughs> <laughs> you've, really, you've really been like trial and error on everything and to get, you know, maybe season after season to try to, you know, yeah. take on a challenge like something relating to productivity or, you know, how, how I don't know, how you treat it if there's insects or disease so yes well no it's true and I I mean I literally have no horticultural background whatsoever I mean absolutely none I have a little bit of a design background but that's it and so I, I mean again I feel like it is complete trial and error and and so when I have a new garden client now I said you know all I will suggest to them look we can try it this way 
this might be really fun for you. And if it doesn't work, it, we can move them and we can try mm. something different. So mm-hmm. um, gardening is, it's a process. It's an experiment. Um, it's never its never static. It's always changing. And, you know, we can make uh, mistakes in the garden, but I call those experiments. Yeah, good. And <laughs> I think um, as long as you're not making the same mistake twice, (laughs) then Mm -hmm. I think you're doing pretty well. But I think that it's really important to give people the freedom to try things. Um, You know, we don't know uh, how a certain flower is going to do in a certain zone or a certain, you know, and even if you say like, okay, zone four, but you're not taking into account the wind patterns, you're not taking into account... um, you know, maybe the native soil or the insect population or anything else. So the zone is not always the best way to sort of determine if something's going to do okay or not. The only way to do that is to play with it. So the only, the frustrating uh, part of designing gardens that I have to contend with is um, some clients want everything to be perfect tomorrow yeah and that's just not gardening and like a full a fully developed garden with no gaps right with no kind of yeah with no kind of fiddling around or fit figuring out uh what's gonna work the best so we we try we have a plan we have a lovely plan we pick our colors we pick our plants we start but a year two years later I'm encouraging people to take out the ones that maybe don't do as well as they'd like them to do or move them. Just try them in a different spot. Mm-hmm. Um, that sometimes yeah. works with a plant that's not doing well. Um, and then, you know, shovel pruning. I don't think people are so reluctant <laughs> to get rid of something that doesn't perform well. They're really reluctant. Right. Um, but real, but- real estate is precious, especially if you have a tiny <laughs> garden. You're, I love that term. <laughs> I know it's uh, yeah. I did not invent that, but um, no, I, I love like it. it. I do. I really do. So, well, so that's kind of a little. I don't know. It's encouraging. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. the idea that you can relocate a rose is something that many people are afraid to do. And yeah. isn't it really just? I mean, you probably can move it any time of the year, but there are better times than others for slightly bit more success. Yeah, I. I mean, you know, if you've got high 90s or high 80s weather in the summer I wouldn't move a rose but mm-hmm. um you know the best time to move it is um in the fall or in the spring yeah when you're either right you know uh either right after you prune it or right before you know right before the spring season mm. but mm-hmm. you know in California we are so lucky here uh you could really probably move a rose at any time of the year yeah and I've had um I have one client that um sold her house and she had her grandmother's roses in it and she asked me to come and um, dig them up and pot them for her so that she could um, have them in her next house and that was I'm still watching the roses there in pots here but that was like four years ago she I mean like you're babysitting them now (laughs) babysitting her roses but we took those out in the middle of summer as I recall and they're they're just fine they're doing great so oh that's great well, how are you dividing your, I mean, obviously this book was a, a huge project in the last, I'm assuming the last year and a half or so, maybe two years. Um, but in general, you've, you've survived COVID and yeah. Rosary Farm is, you know, like stronger than ever. But I think some things have changed. Like I want to just maybe touch on that for people who have um, 
you know, maybe you visited in the past, you're not open to the public anymore. Isn't that correct? We're not. Um, once we, we had the fire and the mud flow and we had so much damage after the mud flow that we just, it was very frustrating for us. And it took us almost four years to get back to uh, where we were before the fire. Mm-hmm. Um, so we stopped our tours at that point. We just couldn't, I, I was too embarrassed to have people come out and see the mess. Um, and it really was a mess. Um, so we, um, we really focused on wholesale uh, garden rows, cut garden rows sales, um, which is a whole arm of the business. And then I, I focused, I personally focused on helping others with their gardens. And that part of the business has expanded to the point where that's just about all I do now um, is outside gardens. But wow. um, now it's our 25th anniversary this year of the, you know, of not the 25th anniversary of the farm, but the 25th anniversary of selling our first roses. And so oh, how we're going wonderful. To, I know, I know we're going to have a, um, uh, we had, we picked about, I think we've picked two or three days a month between now and the fall where we're going to open for tours. And that'll be the first and only time that we are open to the public, um, uh, for this year. So we'll, okay. we've got, I think they're, the, the dates are on our website, but I okay, think we'll get those three dates. Yeah. Three dates, uh, in early June, late May, early June, and then a few more dates. But, um, the idea is that we'll have people out. We'll show them what's happened to the farm. And we get requests all the time for people to come and visit. And we just have had, we've had to say no. So this year it's kind of a special year. We're going to I don't think we'll do it again because it's just we're not set up to do it. Um, I planted the whole parking area with roses. Oh, wonderful. Parking's going to be an issue. We'll have to figure out how to get people to the farm for the tour. Um, But but we're going to try it. And I'm really excited about, you know, sharing the farm again and hearing people's rose stories and showing people what Mm. we're doing now and that sort of thing. So. And so, so those dates are going to, they're available on your website. So we'll share that. And um, when people come, uh, will they be able to perhaps get a signed copy of the book? Yes, signed copy of the book or take home a rose or maybe take home a bouquet of flowers or, you know, just kind of see what the, you know, see what we're up to. Um, And we'll see how it goes. Uh, Hopefully nobody's going to mind walking a little bit because I think the parking is going to be interesting. Yeah. Uh, but, it is but, it is a working farm. You're not going to have a, like you know red carpet uh, yeah. access. So no, and we're going to yeah, we'll limit the number of guests that we have for each tour so that um, sure. it's not overwhelming for anybody and mm. not for us as well. So yeah. anyway, so yeah. that's going to be kind of fun. Um, wow. Yeah. So so you are working. You you have committed to doing a second book. I haven't committed oh, yet, but it's but in it's, your mind. It's in my brain. All right. <laughs> Once, hey, this was this was your this was your uh, dive in and go all in. Oh, I don't know. This is. I think it's a glutton for punishment. I mean, and you can relate too. I mean, I know you've written multiple books, but just the whole process of doing it and how long it takes, and just the the agonizing over certain (laughs) paragraphs. And I mean, and I only had like fourteen pages to write. I didn't even have that much. I think it was harder to write those fourteen pages than it would have been to write you know, a hundred. I, I really do because I, I just agonized over every word choice and I wanted it to be my voice and it was so hard to do it. I mean, you must live this daily. 
You know, I am. I'm, I love print media. I love magazines and newspapers, and then that led to books. And books are there's a permanence to books. There's some kind of it's like an artifact that mm-hmm. lives, um, you know, lives far beyond your your blood, sweat, and tears to get it published. Uh, I will say that a friend of mine uh, told me once that in the Jewish faith, and I'm not Jewish, but I'm quoting a Jewish friend, that there are three things that you aspire to. One is to have a child, one is to travel to Israel, and one is to write a book. <laughs> and so, wow. I know. So, I, I was like, well, I've done two of those three things. Maybe yeah. I'll get to Israel one of these days. Oh, no, I, I think I'll go with you. <laughs> you know, you put, putting a book on the level of going to your homeland and then having a child, it's sort of, it's sacred in a way. So Right, um, it is. And I just, you know, I, I, honestly, it was a struggle. And, um, you know, I was fortunate in that um, 10 Speed and my agents had confidence that I could do this book. And they approached me rather than vice versa. And I know that I mean, I think I, I, I've never taken that for granted. I've never taken yeah. for granted the fact that I did not have to put together a proposal. I just had to make this perfect. Um, I, I think Well, you've that talked that was, about it for so long. It's wonderful <laughs> that they, they kind of made it impossible to say no, you know? You, well, they did. And, um, I know it was so fun, but, um, but just not having to do that first part was, um, I think had I had to do the proposal, I might have known how much work the book would be. Yeah. Um, that's the difference. So I was kind of caught unaware of how much, uh, you know, just blood, sweat and tears as it were, um, it takes to do this. I mean, yeah. just and, you know, picking the photographs. I mean, we agonized over which view we liked of each. I mean, like the, the photo that, I just, you, that you just passed. Uh-huh. That was, um, it's called um, The this Little One, one on the Right. Yeah, Perf- I love Perf- that. Perfume, Perfume Dream. Breeze. Perfume, Perfume Breeze. Perfume Breeze. Yeah, I'm yeah. not familiar with that. Oh, it's such a sweet rose. It's just an incredible rose. And it's it's a climber and it takes over the world. And when you walk under that you know, walk near that rose or under an arch with it, your whole, I mean, all you do is smell that rose and it's Mm. so sweet. Mm. But we agonized over the, you know, we did five different views of that particular uh, stem and we agonized over which one we thought really exemplified the rose the best. And so, you know, 300 of roses where we were looking at every single view of, right. you know, you don't just take one photo of the bloom. You take, you turn no. it a little bit, you fix it. And so Vicki and I would, afterwards, we would say, well, what do you think? What, which do you like best? So, I mean, I felt like it was kind of birthing something. Yeah. And a, a um, true collaboration. And that particular yeah. per- perfume breeze, I just have to compliment you on choosing that one. Because you really see the form and you see how the f- clusters, the floral clusters come together and how beautiful the foliage is and how yes. those dainty little buds uh, dance at the end of the tips. And I just, I yeah. want to grow it now. It's amazing. Yeah, you should. That is, I mean, if I had to recommend one rose for somebody to grow over an arbor, I'd say grow that one. It's just, mm. And that's a, that's Otto and Sons. They have that mm. rose. Mm. And they turn me on. Cindy, um, who's Scott's wife, Cindy Klittish, um, she's the one that sort of said, you've got to, you know, just look at this rose. And so I just fell immediately in love with it, bought eight of them, I think, have them planted all over the farm now. And um, it's great. So wow, that's I think beautiful. you'll love it. Yeah, really, really oh, fun. 
Well, Danny, um, we could talk for another three or four hours. I Unfortunately, know. we're not together and we don't have a glass of wine with us. But other <laughs> than that, tell me um, anything else that you want to include that and let people know about um, who've uh, happened upon this conversation. Anything that I've left out? Mm, I think... I don't know. I just like talking to you, Deborah. I've missed you. I know. I saw you in 2019, uh, the, the year you and Felicia had that beautiful workshop. Oh, the workshop, in yes. In March. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then, she's, oh my gosh, I love her farm and I love her tulips and what she's doing with her bare root roses. And she's just, oh my gosh. Yeah. You guys put she's, on a big party. You invited me. I loved it. And like less than a year later, COVID hit. Right. And we we couldn't see each other, but I will. I, I don't know if I'll get down for one of your open houses, but I'm really happy to share that with our audience because um, if you are able to coordinate a, a visit to Rose Story Farm, you will not be disappointed. It is yeah. just such a special place, and the people there are very special. The whole <laughs> the, the whole Del Army and and Han, Han families uh, they just you know made me feel welcome every time. I oh come, well, so. and we're yeah, I, I'm. Very much looking forward to your next visit, for sure. You know, Felicia and I had a second um, workshop um, planned, and then um, COVID hit, so we had to cancel it, which is too bad. So, And, you know, now everybody's just kind of done their own thing. That's the one thing that COVID did for people. I think it just really had um, an impact on um, farmer florists. We had to Mm -hmm. really sort of figure out what we wanted to do, what what worked for us, and uh, uh, a lot of the rose growers have gone in sort of slightly different directions, which has been really wonderful to see. And it's so, it's such a collaborative group of people. It really, um, I just, I love that about farming. I love the collaboration. Yeah. I love uh, other flower farmers and, and sharing ideas and stuff. But that's the one thing. And I think we've just gotten so busy that it would be hard to break away and and you know, start to do this again. But I think, you know, there's probably another um, collaborative workshop in our future. So Yeah, yeah, sign me up. Um, Well, listen, this has been so much fun. I will, um, as I said, share all of the things that we've discussed, including links and photos and um, social media places and the calendar of events uh, for Roastery Farm so people can plan their spring and summer and maybe fall. And congratulations on the 25-year anniversary. I didn't know that, but that's <laughs> that's brilliant. Thank you. you I know. Yeah. It's, I can't. It feels like it was yesterday. And I think that's what happens when you do something you truly love. It does, you know, time yeah. does go by quickly. I mean, the yeah. kids are both out of the house. I mean, they're gone, they're launched they're, Yeah. Um, and they grew up here. And so that's like the, that's, that's the one thing that's sort of fun about this whole thing is like, I'm, I look at our family and how the family has changed. I mean, I think Will was three and Jeffrey was literally six months old when we moved out here. And now, um, you know, whatever they're, they're men, they're men and they're yeah. married and they're living their lives and doing what they love. And so that's Mm. been really fun. So I love it. Yeah. It's all been, it's been a transition. I think this year has been, or the last couple of years have been really uh, a transition for all of us. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, You're ready to, you're ready to be out and about talking with people, sharing this beautiful book and, um, and congratulations. I'm really proud of you. Thank you. You've done a beautiful job. Thank you. Okay. We'll talk to you soon, Danny. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Thanks so much for joining us today. What a lovely experience to talk roses with one of our living rose legends. Thank you, Danny. I can't wait to return to Rose Story Farm for another visit. Listeners, you can find the replay video of today's interview at slowflowerspodcast.com for episode 605, as well as images of the interior pages of The Color of Roses, a link to order your own copy, and I'll share the link to Danny's original interview on the Slow Flowers podcast uh, nine years ago. I'll also share the public dates for visiting Rose Story Farm, which were just released. I believe the first date is at the end of April, so check it out if you think you'll be in the Santa Barbara Carpinteria area. Our next thank you goes to Rooted Farmers. Rooted Farmers works exclusively with local growers to put the highest quality specialty cut flowers in floral customers' hands. When you partner with Rooted Farmers, you are investing in your community, and you can expect a commitment to excellence in return. Learn more at rootedfarmers.com. In News of the Week, this Friday, April 14th, is our member meetup of the month. This month, we've invited four guests, all Slow Flowers members who own successful retail flower shops and who have curated unique product mixes of gifts and other items that pair well with fresh local flowers. You'll hear from this panel who offer high-value luxury collections to their floral customers. You'll meet Heidi Joint of Field and Florist. She'll talk about luxury fragrances. You'll meet Susan Chambers of Bloom and Couture, and she'll talk about her custom candle collection. You'll meet Kelly Marie Thompson of Floor Inc. She has a fine jewelry and engagement ring collection. And Laura Lee Symes of Selwood Flower Company, who has an extensive wine and champagne collection. All four are past guests of the Slow Flowers podcast. Pre-registration is required, and you can find the sign-up link in today's show notes or in our Linktree menu at Slow Flower Society on Instagram. I hope to see you there. Our final thank you goes to Johnny's Selected Seeds, an employee-owned company that provides our industry with the best flower, herb, and vegetable seeds, supplied to farms large and small, and even to backyard cutting gardens like mine. Find the full catalog of flower seeds and bulbs at johnnysseeds.com. Thanks so much for joining me today. The Slow Flowers Podcast is a member-supported endeavor downloaded more than 1 million times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. As our movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of our domestic cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. If you're new to our weekly show or our long-running podcast, check out all of our resources at slowflowersociety.com. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of The Slow Flowers Show and The Slow Flowers Podcast. The Slow Flowers Podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more slow flowers on the table, one stem, one vase at a time. I'll see you next week. Thank you.